Hey, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13, if uh, this is your first time joining us or your first time joining us in a while, if you're coming back from summer break, school, all that, um, we're in a sermon series on Nehemiah. Um, as a church, we uh, just kind of slowly walk through books of the Bible uh, for, for preaching. And right now we are in a, a sermon series on Nehemiah where we started um, about two months ago in Nehemiah 1. And uh, now we are in Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. So if you want to turn there, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13, you can find that on page 228 on those uh, uh, white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. Grab one of those, turn to page 228. That will get you where you need to go. Um, if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Uh, in addition to that, there's also, uh, you received when you walked in, uh, a bulletin. Inside of that bulletin, there um, was a bulletin insert, a connect card. Uh, if you would, just take a moment, fill that out. Let us know how we can get in touch with you. Let us know how we can be praying for you. There's a little uh, spot for uh, prayer requests. Jot a few things down there. We'd love to be in prayer for you this week about whatever needs you may have. Um, all right, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. Um, you know, one of the greatest tests of a person's uh, or community's character in righteousness is how they treat the poor and most vulnerable. Um, how do you treat the poor? Uh, how do we treat the poor, the helpless, the, the vulnerable? How you treat those who can do nothing for you says much about the kind of person you are. Uh, this is a, a true and most telling test of, of character. Well, in this particular section of Nehemiah, chapters 2 through 6, uh, the community goes through a series of tests uh, in their mission to build the wall. Uh, thus far, the tests we've seen them going through uh, have, have mainly been tests of opposition, outside opposition, um, outsiders mocking, jeering, even threatening the people of God and their mission to rebuild the wall. And uh, the people of God, though, they've proved faithful. They've been faithful in the midst of this testing. They've persevered. They have uh, picked up their swords and their trowels, and they've marched on in this mission to build the wall. They've resumed the work. They've relied on the Lord. We've seen this as we've been walking through Nehemiah. But all the while, um, there was a greater test of their community going on. Uh, a test of how they treated the poor and the most vulnerable and the most needy in their midst. And unfortunately, this is a test which they had been failing. Failing in the sense that they had not only failed to care for the poor and vulnerable in their midst, but were even actively oppressing and exploiting the poor and vulnerable in their midst. And for this, they need to repent. Now, as we get into the text... We see some valuable lessons here for us. Um, sure, circumstances may vary somewhat, uh, but we are the church, we are the new and true Israel, and we too are called to care for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable inside our walls and outside as well. We too have this divine call laid on us to 
uh, seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. In fact, Jesus even says in Matthew 25, 40, that at the final judgment, all of our care and service to the poor and vulnerable and exploited will be counted as service as being done unto him. And those who don't care for and serve the poor and vulnerable, as we see in Matthew 25, 46, are going to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. So we would do well to pay attention to what Jesus is saying to us here in Nehemiah 5 about how we're to conduct ourselves toward the poor and exploited. So let's read this text. Let's read that with this in mind. And then we'll jump immediately into an exposition of it after we read. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. Let's listen with reverence and with joy for this is the voice of our God. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, May God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may the meditation, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. The main idea that we see in this text is that the church must listen to the cry of the poor and exploited and defend them against injustice. The church must listen to the cry of the poor and exploited and defend them against injustice. We'll unpack that by walking through the text, seeing the cry of the poor in verses 1 through 5. 
the Christ-like response in verses 6 through 13, and we'll close with looking at the call of the church. So first we see the cry of the poor and exploited in verses 1 through 5. On the midst of working on the wall, a story all are are well familiar with uh, takes place. The poor are getting poorer, and the rich are getting richer, and the rich are manipulating the social condition so that they get richer while the poor get poorer. It was a classic case of what we might call exploitation. And what makes it worse is that this wasn't Sam Ballot or Tobiah or any of those wretched men we've met so far uh, who opposed the work of the wall who were doing such things. There were some within the people of God, the Jewish community, the Old Testament church who were doing this. They were ignoring the Lord and his laws. They weren't taking care of their poor brothers and sisters who were in desperate situations. Rather, they were doing the exact opposite. They were taking advantage of and committing usury against them. So those who were weak and poor and being taken advantage of began to cry out. Verse 1 says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people, a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. This word outcry here should be reminding us of something. Okay, it's supposed to remind us of this exact same phrase, the great outcry of the people of Israel when they were in slavery and oppression in Egypt in Exodus 3.9. While slaves in Egypt, the Israelites were so weighed down and desperate and exhausted and oppressed, they were enslaved, they were being beaten and killed. They felt forgotten, they felt utterly helpless. And so they began to do all that they could do, and that's cry out to God for redemption and rescue. But we're to see the same picture here. These were a people who were oppressed and exploited, a people who felt as if they were helpless. They felt desperate. And it was not the Egyptians doing this, but their very own people who were doing this. And we see this in the, in the three complaints listed here as they kind of escalate in severity. There's three complaints. They escalate in severity. First, we see the complaint in verse 2. With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So obviously, food is a basic human need. Uh, and, and as we see in the second complaint, there was a, a famine going on. And these families were large. That could be some of y'all's memory verses up in here. With our sons and daughters, we are many. Uh, But they needed food to eat. They were hungry. Uh, They were destitute due to this famine. And and from there, the problem worsens because these families then have to mortgage their family holdings in order to get food and pay taxes. And and we see this in verse 3 as they say, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So obviously, their their need for food must have been desperate or they wouldn't have put themselves in this situation, right? Uh, but if you have to choose between starving to death or mortgaging your property, property the, the choice is obvious, right? You, you, you pick eating. Eating is a more primary, it's a, uh, it's a primary need. And yet these, these practices still don't alleviate their distress. Now, having lost control of their lands, and not only that, but many of them have lost their lands because they couldn't pay back the loans along with the interest that they were being charged. So they resorted to selling their children into indentured servitude and possibly even slavery without any means to eventually free them. They say, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. 
for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So to sum it all up, they have a lack of food. They're hungry. Second, they've had to mortgage their property for short-term cash to buy food and pay taxes. Third, they've, many of them have lost their properties because they're too poor to pay back what they've uh, borrowed along with the interest that their Jewish brothers were charging them. And four, they've sold their children into indentured servitude, maybe even outright slavery, for the sake of survival. And they have no means of buying their children back. You can see why they're in such emotional turmoil. You can see why they're crying out. These are desperate times for these people. And they feel as if they've exhausted all their possibilities and resources. Now they've nothing else to do but cry out to the community because of their poverty, because of the injustices that they're facing and the mistreatment that they're experiencing at the hands of their Jewish brothers. And now listen... They've got a right to cry out here. They've got a right to go to Nehemiah and complain about the unrighteousness of the community here that was taking advantage of them. God's law is very clear about how the family of God is supposed to, to conduct themselves and how the family of God is supposed to care for the weak and poor and vulnerable in their midst. Exodus 22, 25 says, this is the law of God. It says, if you lend your money to any of my people, any of the family of God who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them. It's not a business opportunity. You shall not exact interest from them. And likewise, Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And furthermore, Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. This is a very important text for our reading of Nehemiah 5 here. This is of particular interest because this is the exact text Nehemiah has in mind in his rebuke in verses 6 to 13 here. He appeals to the Jews to fear God and to care for their brothers. He gets that language straight from Leviticus here. See if you can hear this. Look at Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. If your brother becomes poor, if your brother becomes poor, and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. This is the law of God, a law which God requires absolute obedience to and the people of God are going to remain in the land. But unfortunately, that's not what was going on here. They're they're not caring for the poor and vulnerable in their midst. Instead, they're exploiting the poor and the vulnerable in their midst. And this should have us on the edge of our seats here. Because if if you'll recall, part of the reason why Israel and Judah had been exiled from the land in the first place was because of the gross social injustices they were committing. They were exploiting the poor, enslaving the poor, and this they were enslaving their brothers and sisters. They were exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. The very same things they're doing here. That's why they were that's why they were removed from the land in the first place. So this needs to be remedied. This is serious business. If they're going to remain in the land, they need to repent of this like now. 
This darkness needs to be exposed by the light. This unrighteousness needs to be repented of. This social injustice needs to be overcome by the justice of God. And for that to take place, there needs to be a Christ-like response from Nehemiah and the people and repentance from those committing these injustices. And that's what we see here in verses 6 to 13. Verses 6 through 13. First, look at verse 6. Notice that Nehemiah listens. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. He listens. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't tell them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. He doesn't tell them that they should have been more responsible and planned better. He doesn't call them cultural market Marxists on his blog. He heard their outcry and their words, and he listened to them. Now, this is an important lesson for us because we live in a time where our listening habits have been shaped and formed by the likes of Facebook and Twitter and partisan politics. Therefore, listening to others is often not an act that comes naturally to us, right? So we have to be disciplined in our pursuit to truly listen to others, and particularly in our pursuit of listening to those whose voice is often suppressed because of injustice and exploitation. The people crying out here in Nehemiah were the most powerless and least listened to in all of the community. That's the way it always is with the poor. They're marginalized, they're ostracized, they're minimized. The poor are pretty much always pushed to the side and ignored, but not so with God. God listens to the poor. Psalm 69.33 says that the Lord listens to the needy. He listens. And all who trust in him, all who fear him, do the same. That's why we must listen to the cry of the poor and exploited. And that's what Nehemiah does here. Next, after Nehemiah has listened, he gets angry. And not just angry, Nehemiah gets very angry, he says. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now, we need to be careful here because, our sin, because of our sinful proclivities toward self-righteousness and hatred and contempt. Anger is, is dangerous for us. But there is such a thing as righteous anger. And injustice ought to make us angry. Okay, it's good to be angry at injustice. If you don't get angry at injustice, there's something wrong with you. You need to wake up. God is angry. God is angry at injustice. When people are not rightly given their due, God is angry. When there's not a fair distribution of economic means, educational prospects, political influence, and opportunities in a community, God is angry. When the weak, the destitute, the vulnerable are not cared for properly, when governing authorities don't govern equitably, God is angry. And we ought to be as well. We ought to be angry about the murder of unborn children. We ought to be angry when young, unarmed black men are gunned down in the streets. We ought to be angry when hospitals and are closed in parts of town where minorities and the under-resourced live, leaving them without access to quality health care. We ought to be angry about these sorts of things. We ought to be angry when women are harassed and assaulted at the hands of powerful men. We ought to be angry when predatory lenders, like they do in, in Nehemiah 5 here, when they target the desperate poor. We ought to be angry about these kinds of things. We ought to be angry. 
And if we're not, there's something wrong with our sense of justice, with what we think about justice and injustice. And more importantly, there's something wrong with what we believe about the character of God. Because God is angry. He's, God is burning with red-hot anger and hatred at sin and injustice. And especially so when he sees the church complacent in the face of it, or God forbid, when the church participates in it. Nehemiah gets angry here. And in so doing, he's reflecting the heart of God in this situation. Because God is angry about this. He's angry about wickedness and injustice every day. Now, what we do with our anger matters. You know, we're we're not called to exact vengeance. We're not called to violence in the face of, of injustice. We're not God. We leave vengeance to the wrath of God. Yet we are called to defend the weak and poor in the face of opposition. And that's what we see Nehemiah uh, do here next. He listened. He started with listening. And then he's angry. And his anger moves him to defend the poor and exploited. Being the wise man that he is, though, Nehemiah takes counsel with himself. Takes a moment to collect himself. Be wise to do so when you're angry. He wants to make sure his response is righteous. He says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. From there, what we see take place is actually the process for church discipline, which makes sense. These men are breaking God's law. They need to be rebuked and held accountable. They need to be called to repentance, so that's what Nehemiah does. First, he rebukes them personally and in private. He writes, he says to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And again, he's, he's using language from Leviticus 25 here. He's appealing to the reality that these are brothers and sisters, the family of God, that are being taken advantage of. But apparently this this doesn't take because Nehemiah then has to take it to the next step. He brings these issues before the church. He says next that he held a great assembly against them. His holding a great assembly means that he called the church together, just as Jesus says to do in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, when one brings charges against a member of God's church. And when the church comes together, Nehemiah states the charges. In verse 8, he says, Listen, we've redeemed many of these poor brothers and sisters from exile and from slavery to the Gentiles. And now that they're back and freed, you're forcing them through this usury to have to sell themselves back into slavery. We're going to have to do the same thing all over again. This is ridiculous. And to this, the nobles and officials, they they can say nothing. They knew that the case against them was strong. They knew they were in the wrong. They knew that they had sinned and broken God's law. And so Nehemiah continues Again, bringing the same language from Leviticus 25 that we read earlier. They're taking advantage of the weak and poor shows that they don't fear God. Nehemiah says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. A long story short, Nehemiah calls for these corrupt business practices to be abandoned, and then furthermore, he calls for for amnesty in the city of Jerusalem that day. All debts forgiven, all slaves freed. And to this, the nobles and officials agree, and they promise to keep their word. 
And as a prophetic symbol, Nehemiah empties out his pockets. And he says, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all in the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they'd promised. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, If you don't stop doing this, and if you don't keep your word, you're going to be excommunicated and removed from this community. And then the people praise the Lord. They keep their promises. So before we get to the next point, I I want us to see how this reflects the heart of our God in Christ. Nehemiah listened to the poor and exploited. Nehemiah got angry at the injustices they suffered. Nehemiah defended them. Nehemiah knew the heart and character of his God. All of those hours that he had spent searching the scriptures and in prayer transformed Nehemiah to be a man who reflects the character of his God. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Psalm 12.5 says that when the poor are plundered and when the needy groan, the Lord rises to their defense. He is the defender of the needy and poor. Psalm 14.6 says that the Lord is the refuge of the poor. And we see this most clearly in Jesus of Nazareth, who came to earth, he put on flesh, and he came to, to, to bring justice and mercy to the earth. We sang about that this morning. Hail to the Lord's anointed. We see this in his life. He touched lepers and defended prostitutes and loved the weak and poor. Not only that, but he became poor himself. He became, willingly became poor and weak. The God we worship was a God who made himself weak and poor and who suffered injustice. He walked this earth as a man of sorrows with no place to rest his head, with barely two pennies to rub together. And he suffered the greatest injustice of all as the only righteous and just man. He suffered execution on a Roman cross. That's not all. Three days later, he was vindicated by God and being raised from the dead. And before ascending to heaven, he told his disciples that one day he would return. And when he returns, he's going to set all things right. This little assembly here in Nehemiah 5, is not even going to compare to that great assembly, the day of judgment, when he makes all things right. And all those who do not care for the poor and exploited will be shaken out. He's going to overcome all injustice with the justice of heaven, and all those who are exploited and oppressed will be raised up from the ash heap, and all those who exploited and oppressed the poor are going to be condemned. But those who repent of and turn away from such acts, who share in God's and Christ's concern for the weak and poor, they're going to be raised up, and he's going to say to them, as he said he will in Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We're called to this. This is what we are called to as the people of God. We're called to care for the least of these, Christ, his brothers. And so before the day of judgment comes, we have work to do. Lastly and briefly, look at the call of the church. As Pastor J.J. mentioned last Sunday, this community here in Nehemiah is often referred to as the post-exilic community. 
Another way to put that is that they are considered to be uh, the community who is brought back from exile. But while it's true that they're back in Jerusalem, the sort of pathetic temple dedication that we see in Ezra and the continued struggles with social injustice and disobedience to God's law are meant to be signs to us that this community is not actually back from exile, not really. They may be back in Jerusalem, but spiritually speaking, they are still in exile. They're still in a state of unforgiveness. They still haven't received the promised spirit who would write God's law on their hearts. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah couldn't lead them there. As good of a man as he was, as capable of a leader as he was, he still wasn't the Christ. But where he failed, Christ succeeded in bringing about the restored community. And that's what Luke is getting at in Acts when he gives us the description of the, these descriptions of the church throughout Acts. We see one of those descriptions in Acts 2:42 through 47. We did like a, a six-week series in Acts 2:42 through 47. But one of the things Luke says about the church there, he says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We see another in Acts 4, 32 through 37, where Luke says about the church that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see what Luke is getting at here. This new covenant church is the restored community who loves one another and cares for one another and provides for one another and shares with one another whenever and wherever there's need. They're they're not being forced to do it, but they're doing it because they're so transformed by the grace of God and the law of God is written on their hearts to care for their poor brothers and sisters and to fear God. The church, this, the church is called to be the city of God in the world. We're called to be a taste of heaven where there's no one needy. Where not only are the weak and poor not exploited, but their needs are met. There's not to be a needy person among the family of God. So, so let me say this really briefly. If you're a member of this church and you ever have a need If you make your need known, it will be met. That is a promise from the elders to you. If you are a member of this church and you ever have a need, a basic need, and if you make that need known, it will be met. You don't ever need to go hungry. You don't ever need to go without heat or water or power or shelter or clothing. You don't need to go without any of your basic needs met. If you make your needs known, they will be met. You can come to one of the elders. You can go to Deacon Mike. That's part of his role here. He's the the deacon of mercy and benevolence. And don't be afraid. We'll we'll respect your privacy. We're not going to announce it to the church. we'll, We'll respect your privacy, but we will help with your basic needs if you're struggling to meet them. We set aside money in our budget precisely for that. There should not be a needy person among us. There need not be, ever. That's part of the call of the church. Next, the church is called to be a community who listens. 
And I, I kind of want to widen the sphere of application here. We need to listen to, to our inter- those uh, that we have internal relationships with one another as a local church, but also in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the universal church and also with non-believers as well. We need to be a community who listens. We're called to that. And I want to press this particular point partly because of what I mentioned earlier about our listening habits being formed through social media and partisan politics, just so often bad at listening. The world doesn't listen well, but it's not supposed to be that way. That shouldn't be true of us. We need to be a people who listen to the cries of the poor and exploited and who seek to understand. And now a really important part of there, a, a, a really important part of that, of listening, is to let the poor and exploited be trusted interpreters of their own experience. One of the most common methods that the privileged use to dismiss the poor and exploited is to treat them as if they can't be relied upon to testify to the injustices, to the injustices they've experienced should never be the case with us. For example, white brothers and sisters, if a black brother or sister tells you that they are a victim of systemic racism and discrimination, we should trust them to know more about their own experience than we do. We should not dismiss them or explain away their suffering. If they say that they've been unfairly and regularly targeted by police or been unfairly treated in an employment setting due to race or other situations along those lines, we should listen rather than dismiss and explain away or suspect dishonesty when exploited races and classes and demographics of people cry out the church is called to listen. The body of Christ, the people of God, ought to be the best listeners on the planet we have to be the most sympathetic listeners. We have to be the most compassionate. We're, we're hurt. We deserve nothing from God. We are spiritually impoverished, but he hears us. Like, so we should listen to those who can do nothing for us, even if we don't get anything in return for listening. We ought to listen When the blood of the innocent unborn cries out from the ground, like the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, we ought to listen. We ought to listen. Brothers, when when our sisters have been subject to harassment and abuse and they cry out, me too, we ought to listen. When the poor cry out, when the persecuted cry out, when the oppressed cry out, we ought to listen. God listens and cares And he listens to us, therefore we ought to listen to and care for the poor and exploited. How we conduct ourselves, how we act toward the poor and exploited is a true and telling test of our character. Do we listen to the poor and exploited? Do we get angry about the injustices they face? Do we defend them? These are important questions. Because they ultimately are questions that reflect the heart and character of God. As a community, we're called to reflect the character of God. And he is the God who is the defender of the poor. He listens to the cries of the weak and oppressed. And not only that, realize again that we worship a God who became poor himself. 
who became needy, who became helpless, who subjected himself to the greatest injustice so that we could be forgiven and restored and included in this family forever. He heard our cries as we sat under the oppression of Satan and sin and death, and he came to us. He came, Mark 10.45 tells us, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He met our needs, and now he commissions us to be a community that goes into the world with that good news and to reflect his care and concern for the poor and exploited as we do. And as we do so, our service will be counted as service to him, the Lord of glory. So may we hear and heed this call. Let's pray together.